0: Hey, everybody. I don't know if you've heard, but we have a book coming out. Finally, finally, after all these years, it's great. It's fun. You're going to love it. It's called Stuff You Should Know, colon, an incomplete compendium of mostly interesting things.
1: Yep. And it's 26 jam-packed chapters that we wrote with another guy named Nils Parker, who's amazing and is illustrated amazingly by our illustrator, Carly Minardo and it's just an all-around joy to pick up and read. Even though we haven't physically held in our hands yet, it's like we have, Chuck, in our dreams so far.
0: I can't wait to actually see and hold this thing and smell it. And so should you. So pre-order now. It means a lot to us. Uh, The support is a very big deal. So pre-order anywhere books are sold.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Should
0: Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. And this is Stuff You Should Know, the amazing Unsung Woman edition, volume two at least. No, more than two. What number would you say then? I don't know,
0: but I tell you what, if you want to take a vote on maybe one of the most undersung while at the same time being most influential Americans to ever live. Neil Diamond. You'd be... (laughs) Oh, <laughs> he was very sung.
1: I know. I'm, I'm not a big fan anyway.
0: Um, you would be hard-pressed to overlook uh, Ms. Perkins.
1: Yeah. Ms. To- Frances Perkins. Totally agree. Had never heard her name before. Had never even known she existed. But yeah, the more you dig into her, the more you're just like... It was almost a crime that this, this woman was virtually written out of the history books.
0: Yeah. And if you are... Um, One of those people who was unfortunate to not be able to work right now during uh, quarantine and the uh, the effects of Mm COVID-19, and you are um, not lucky enough, but, uh, you know, deservedly enough receiving unemployment insurance, you can thank Francis Perkins for that.
1: That's right. And every single person who's getting a check as uh, measly as they've gotten lately is getting one. Uh, because of this system that Francis Perkins set up, and what's really I think worth noting too is this: ex- is this is exactly the kind of situation that she got this mm-hmm. passed for, that she helped design this for. Totally. Because there's a quote I, I can't remember exactly where the quote was, but to, to paraphrase it, it's basically like we need to. We need to always keep our eye on the long-term and plan for the worst-case scenario. While, yes, there's a lot of immediate needs that we need, but there's always going to be something that comes down the road. And if we have planned for it, we're way better off. Just imagine how disastrous it would be on top of the current disaster if there wasn't such a thing as unemployment insurance. And this is how we found out that we really kind of need it.
0: Yeah, it would be. Dark ages stuff in this country.
1: Yeah. So if you have gotten your unemployment insurance check and it has helped you, thank Francis Perkins somehow.
0: Yeah. And we want to thank uh, How Stuff Works. That's where part of this uh, research come uh, came from and uh, some other places. But notably, and I want to shout this out because this is a library intern at the FDR Library who wrote a, a paper called Honoring the Achievements of FDR Secretary of Labor, uh, Jessica Brightman. Mm hmm. This is really good stuff, and and she's a library intern, and we want to shout her out. Yeah, she did great, or she was at the time. I imagine uh, she's moved on from that internship
1: <laughs> after after she turned that essay in. <laughs> yeah. you bet
0: you're bippy. She did. <laughs> so Francis Perkins was born uh, Fanny Coralie Perkins mm-hmm. in uh, Boston in 1880, uh, but her relatives and her ancestors came from Maine, and it's kind of funny here at the beginning of this. How Stuff Works thing it says, uh, she's so undersung that even residents of her hometown of uh, Scott of Maine, didn't seem familiar with her legacy. Mm-hmm. I think that says more about Maine,
1: <laughs> <laughs> right? They're you know? like, oh, we don't need to help her put on airs. Well, then just like you know, I don't ask, I don't tell. I just don't. <laughs> I gotcha. Whatever. She lived here, great, good for her. <laughs> I want to say also before the residents of Newcastle bust a, a vein in their forehead. She's also cited as um, a native of Newcastle, Maine. Oh, and they're okay. right across the Damarascada Dem- De River oh, from boy. one another. I think she's from Newcastle. That's so is this guess. like
0: a Adidas Puma thing?
1: Maybe. Maybe, except imagine if neither town knew what shoes were. <laughs> I think that would be a pretty accurate analogy. <laughs> Oh boy, I love the Mainers. So she, uh, yeah, she was, she came from really like dyed in the wool Yankee stock. Um, her family came over, I think, in the 1680s. Her, um, she had like, uh, her family out, had built an outpost during the French Indian War. Her grandmother, who had more of an influence on her, she said, than anybody, had a, uh, a cousin who she was close to. Um, who founded Howard University and uh, fought for the rights of uh, newly freed African Americans. Um, She came from, like, a long line of people who, like, cared about other people. And yet, um, surprisingly, her parents were very conservative. They were uh, in favor of, you know, helping the poor, but not mingling with them helping them. Like, helping them by, like, you know, sending some money or something like that. Okay. Um, And they produced a child... Fanny Francis, she changed her name, I think, in, I don't know, her 20s or 30s. Um, she she was the opposite way. She was like, no, like, like, people are people, and they all deserve help, and there's a lot of injustice in this world, and I want to change it myself. And she's one of those people who actually did enact tremendous change for all the right reasons. Yeah, she said, people are people, so why should it be? You and I should get along so awfully.
0: <laughs> which one was that? Depeche
1: Mode. Depeche Mode. I can't. Oh,
0: baby. Hey, that's Emily's jam. I mean, she would. She probably has that tattooed on her body somewhere. <laughs> uh, and in fact, we're both You're doing like, that. It's none of my business. <laughs> we're both doing that. That uh, silly. And I never do these things on Facebook, but I have time now. The top ten most influential albums. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, which one are you going to pick, New Order or Depeche Mode? For her, because that's a that's a tough one.
1: Well, I mean, can't she's got 10 to choose from, right?
0: Yeah, but I think for her, those two are so inextricably tied that mm-hmm. it was one or the other. I gotcha. And she went with Depeche Mode because they were first and thus probably more influential.
1: Depeche Mode was before New Order, huh? Yes. I mean, technically, if you count New Order as an outsh- outcropping of Joy Division, then joy- they were first. Oh, so well, Joy Division was different, though. It was pretty different. Different enough that they might as well be two different bands. <laughs> Which they were. <laughs> you know who we need to, to, to give us the judgment call? Who? is Frances Perkins. <laughs> who who apparently would not have enjoyed our banter. She was very much known as like a, a dour, <laughs> yeah. serious woman. But from what I can tell, that's actually a public persona that she wore to get men to take her seriously.
0: Yeah, well, who can blame her? Uh, Because we'll see later on about her. Uh, It's no accident that she's lost a history in many ways. Yeah, But what she was uh, also was highly educated. Um, She graduated from Mount Holyoke in 1902, uh, where she majored in chemistry and physics, (laughs) even though she made her name in economics, which means she was a very well-rounded human and had a – a very large brain.
1: And apparently, she had made it all the way through college. And um, in her senior year, I think she attended an economics lecture by Florence Kelly, who was a huge um, wage justice crusader. Um, and that just changed her life.
0: Yeah, big time. Uh, in 19, this is post college, she went to Philly. And she became general secretary of the Philadelphia Research and Pro, uh, Protective Association. Mm-hmm. What would she do there? Well, she was in charge of investigating uh, employment agencies that were fake and that preyed on women, uh, immigrant women specifically. And she had to sort of deal with the, the dregs of society in that job and did so uh, very successfully and then decided she wanted to keep her education going. So while she was in Philly – she went to uh, the Wharton School of Finance and Commerce at the University of Pennsylvania because mm. that's super easy and light learning. <laughs> right. uh, and then after that, she went to Columbia where she earned a MA in social economics in 1910. And we should say
1: like she's getting all of this schooling, but at the same time, she's also set herself off on a um, – what's that like learn while you work program called? Internship? I guess so. That's not exactly what I'm looking for. But yeah, I mean, it makes sense. So she set herself up on a real-world internship program. So while she was in Philly working for that that bureau, she was investigating those those fake employment rackets, like, she was on the ground doing this stuff, like, carrying out these inspections, um, investigating factories, like, taking notes, and, like, In her early 20s. Yeah, basically, yeah. While she's studying this stuff, she's also out doing and seeing the stuff firsthand that she's learning about, which, from what I can tell, she really kind of digested and held on to, and it just kept driving her for the rest of her life what she saw. I think that's called the School of Hard Knocks. It is, but she enrolled in the Wharton School and the School of Hard Knocks at the same time, which is pretty impressive. That's right. And
0: after Columbia, after she got that uh, master's, for two years, she served as executive secretary of the Consumers League of New York. Mm -hmm. And this is where she really felt her life calling to improve uh, wages, improve working conditions, uh, because this was 1910 through 1912 and things weren't great in factories at the time. Uh we we could do a a podcast on I don't know what the focus would be necessarily because we've done labor I mean, unions
1: but just labor conditions would yeah, be Yeah, maybe so. eye opening. But there's she did she this is one of the things she did. There's very few uh more depressing words than these strung together. She improved working conditions for children. Yeah. <laughs> That was one of the things she did. I know. And that was at the Consumers League of New York. And she got there and was like, yes, I've, I've achieved my, one of my first goals, which is working directly with the same Florence Kelly, who gave the economics lecture that changed her life years before at uh, Mount Holyoke. That's right. Yeah. So she was one of those ones who said, I want to do this and then would do it and then would move on to the next thing.
0: Yeah, she wouldn't stand around and wait for the statue to be built in her honor. Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So we take a break? Uh, yes. All right, we're going to take a break and talk about a, a pretty devastating fire in New York City that changed the course of her life right after this. What fire, Chuck? I'm talking about the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire mm-hmm. uh, in Manhattan, sort of near Washington Square Park in Greenwich, uh, right next to Washington Square Park Yeah, in Greenwich Village. Uh, I think
1: it's an NYU building now.
0: It is. And I tried to pinpoint if that was the building where I actually had my film classes. Was it? I don't know. I can't quite tell.
1: We got to know, Chuck. <laughs>
0: I'll see if I can find out. Uh, But a shirtwaist was a a woman's blouse, is what they called it at the time. Mm -hmm. And this was a factory that made women's blouses. Uh, If you worked there, you were probably a young woman. Uh, You might be an immigrant. Uh, You would work about 52 hours a week.
1: Oh, I saw 12 hours a day, seven days a week. What does that math turn out to? Uh, Let's see, (laughs) seventy-seven hundred and twenty. 720... Wait, I can't do math out loud. <laughs> well, in let's front say of between everybody. 52
0: and 80 hours a week.
1: No, no, it was way more than that. 12 times 7 equals 84. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. 84 hours a week. But like, even that doesn't sound that big. 12 hour days, seven days a week just to keep your job.
0: Right. So I saw 52. Either way, uh, they made between seven and $12 a week uh, making these blouses for women.
1: Which was not good even back then.
0: Yeah, it wasn't good, and because this was a factory in New York in 1911, uh, they had the doors locked. They had the staircases locked. They thought it prevented theft. Uh, if you remember what happened to locked doors and stairwells in our hotel fire episode, uh, the same thing happened here on March 25th, 1911, mm-hmm. when the Triangle Shirtwaist fire started uh, because they think of a of a match or a cigarette. But thrown into a waste bin. Oh, yeah. And it just, you know, everything in there was flammable practically that wasn't metal because of all these fabrics, like highly flammable. It went up really quick. Uh, it's one of the deadliest U.S. workplace disasters of all time to this day. Uh, four, 146 uh, workers died, 123 of which were women uh, and girls between the ages of uh, generally between fourteen and twenty three, the oldest was forty three, but that was kind of an outlier. Mm-hmm. And sixty two of those people jumped to their death in front of full view of uh, New York City, including uh, Francis Perkins.
1: Right in front of Francis Perkins, she didn't jump to her death. No, no, no. So she, yeah, she's literally witnessing one of the turning points in history. As it happens, seeing women, teenage girls, jump out of the ninth floor of this building because it's on fire, and not only is she witnessing a fire that will change history, she is one of the people that will force history to change because of this fire. the 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 fate or the destiny that that, that put her a block away from this fire when it happened uh, is. It's just astounding to me that she was there because she went on to be one of the people who said, this is never going to happen again. And yeah. under her watch, it basically didn't. It was the worst that it ever got, and it never got that bad again because of the, um, the, the safeguards she forced the state and then later on other states and the federal government to adopt
0: yeah, I mean, she was already kind of headed down this road anyway. She was already part of the New York State Factory Investigating Commission. And because of this fire, which she well, – I don't think we said she was just having tea mm-hmm. um, across the park there, ran over and saw this. Uh, one of the things she saw, at one point there were 20 people that had managed to get out a window onto a, a fire escape, one of those tiny little flimsy New York fire escapes. Mm-hmm. And that all 20 of those people uh, – the thing collapsed, and they all fell to their 100 feet to their death right in front oh of her face.
1: God. Yeah, we need to do an entire episode on that. At the very least, just to to shame the two owners who's who were just totally responsible for all those deaths.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, but this was sort of just the way it was. I mean, not absolving them, but she saw this as part of the bigger problem. Not like these two owners are responsible, but she was like it was an indictment of the system.
1: Yeah, it was. But at the same time, those guys were particularly nasty examples oh, for sure. of the system. They weren't, they weren't average by any means from what I understand.
0: No, but what was average was the fact that they didn't have fire codes. And mm-hmm. she's the person that brought that in. By the time she was in her early 30s, she had uh, called for and successfully called for exit signs, um, occupancy limits, sprinklers, fire escapes, um, unlocked doors and stairwells, how wide the doorways had to be Mm -hmm. uh, depending on your factory floor, like all these sort of common sense things. Like a lot of people saw this stuff happen and and saw this incident that day and were horrified, but Frances Perkins said, nope, I'm going to change it. I'm a woman in 1911 and I'm in my early 30s, but I'm going to make this happen, and she did.
1: She did. Um, She was appointed to the New York Committee on Safety under the recommendation of Teddy Roosevelt, which says a lot because that means she'd already made a name for herself in her 20s in New York City politics to to the point where Teddy Roosevelt would say, like, you really kind of need this woman on there. And then let's not forget the fact that he – the operative word here was woman as far as society was concerned at the time. And this this legislation that she got passed through in New York or that she helped get passed through in New York, like I was saying, it became a model for other states and then eventually the federal fire codes – because of this, because of, of largely because of her efforts, and she she made a name for herself. She'd already made a name for herself, but this really kind of helped cement her name. And she started working closely with a guy named Alfred E. Smith, who was an assemblyman oh, so close. from New York, <laughs> right? But um, he uh, she won his respect um, pretty easily. I think they worked on this um, New York Committee on Safety together. Um, And so when he became governor, she kind of um, rose along with him. She was appointed by him to New York State's Industrial Commission, which made her the first woman to be appointed to a state government position in the country. And with her $8,000 salary, she was the highest paid woman to hold any office in the United States at the time. So she became important pretty quick. But she became important, everybody. This is really important to remember. By hard work and heart, which is a, a just a wonderful combination. Like amazing yeah. things happen in, in from people who have that combination. Yeah, and
0: she um, she ingratiated herself to these male politicians a couple of different important times in her life. And the first one was Alfred E. Smith, like you were saying. So she rose along with him because he knew, he was like, man, I don't care if she's a woman or not. She works harder than anyone I know. Mm-hmm. And she gets the job done, so I'm just going to bring her along with me.
1: And not just, not just works harder. She was w- known as a policy expert about worker safety and um, wage justice by this time, too.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I talked about her very large brain <laughs> <laughs> and her higher education. She was super, super smart. She, like mm-hmm. I said, she majored in chemistry and physics, even though her real love was econ. econ. So it's mm-hmm. like, are you kidding me?
1: Uh, no, we're not kidding at all, Chuck. <laughs> no, it's very much true so um so, so, like you were saying, she first kind of rose to prominence with Alfred E. Smith, who, from what I could tell, I, I didn't get to research him very much, but the stuff that I ran across the references to him, he seemed like a genuine like true believer, crusader in justice, social justice as well, yeah, um so they were like a good a good pair, um and he made it as far as New York Governor. He ran for president. Uh, and didn't win. Uh, and when he didn't win, he, I guess, lost the governorship and was succeeded by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And so Roosevelt came in came into power in New York as the governor of New York. Uh, and Francis Perkins was already there and uh, had already built up a reputation. And Roosevelt recognized the kind of person she was pretty quickly. Because a lot of people are, you know, you you can give a lot of credit or a lot of vilification to, to Roosevelt for his New Deal policies, depending on your political stripes. But if you, you know, if you admire him for it, as I think most people should, he, um, it wasn't just him. One of his great talents was to recognize talent in others yeah, and to bring those people together and then enact policies based on their expertise and their recommendations. And one of those people was Francis Perkins, starting when he was governor of New York and then also when he became president, too.
0: Yeah. So when he came into his governorship, she had already been named and was the the chairperson, called it a chairman back then. In 1926, of the State Industrial Board, mm-hmm. um, she was doing a great job there. And then in 1929, uh, FDR appointed her as the industrial commissioner of the state of New York. And what happens? The stock market crashes. The Great Depression hits America like a punch in the face. And she was the one who stepped in and got it in his ear and said, you know what, like, I know that we have to to feed people right now. We have really immediate needs. But like you mentioned earlier in the episode, she thought about the the big picture and Mm -hmm. long-term goals. She said, we need to really take swift action here. So with her help, they created a committee on employment. He appointed uh, her the head of that. And then when he was elected president in 1933, he said, you know what, I'm going to appoint you to be my secretary of labor.
1: That I, was huge.
0: I've been working with you for 20 years. I trust you, and you're going to do a great job. And the public roundly said,
1: what, a woman in the cabinet? Mm-hmm. They really did. I mean, like, she, she was the first cabinet, first woman to serve as a cabinet member. I mean, women had just gotten the right to vote about 13, 12 or 13 years before. So, Dude, this she was, couldn't
0: vote till she was 40.
1: I know, it's not crazy? Yet, and yet, she held public public appointed offices and still couldn't vote.
0: But wasn't allowed to vote for her boss, right? Exactly,
1: yeah. So it was a really big deal that that FDR appointed a woman as a to a cabinet position. And an important cabinet position, too. I mean, like, it's not like there's any necessarily unimportant cabinet positions, but Secretary of Labor is pretty big. Yeah, especially especially, then. Yeah, especially then, right? And especially... you know at a time when this this emerging superpower t- got, took a huge punch in the face and got knocked on its butt like the rest of the world by the great depression this was important stuff that they were trying to figure out on the fly but he he chose a really a really great person um who wasn't really accepted at first not just by the public but by virtually anybody the labor unions weren't happy she was there because she had a background in social work and policy, not labor. Oh, yeah, labor. scared them to death. Yes, but she eventually won them over just by virtue of what she did. Like, the labor movement was on the ropes at the time. The progressive era ran from, I think, 1890 to about 1920. So by the time 1929, 1930 comes around, it's, it's dying off, the, the labor movement. But under her leadership as the Department of Labor secretary, she um, revived it. And and by the time she either died or left office, I can't remember, um, I think a third of all Americans were members of unions.
0: Yeah. and And, and pre the union stuff, like kind of right after the Great Depression hit, one of the first things they did Together was uh, created the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which was a really big success. uh, One of the big early successes of the New Deal, in that they said, you know what, we have all this, we have this workforce of these unskilled, unmarried men, and let's get these guys working in conservation. Uh, We have these this uh, vast areas of rural land and natural resources, and let's send these guys out there to work on this stuff. And they did, and it provided a ton of jobs through the Civilian Conservation Corps.
1: It did, and it also helped reinforce and build out America's infrastructure too, because they had all this labor that the government was putting to work doing it, right? Yes. So she was in charge of overseeing that, um, and one of the one of the other, I guess, the next big thing. I think it was before Social Security was something called the Wagner Act. And the Wagner Act. Oh, I gave think you mean
0: the Wagner Act.
1: <laughs> the the the, uh, the Wagner Wagner Act. Depending on your persuasion, um, it gave uh, workers the right to unionize and the right to collectively bargain. Yeah. And um, one of her roles was to go out and promote this stuff, not just to, you know, other members of the government. Um, or members of industry, but to individual Americans too. So in 1933 alone, she gave 100 different policy speeches in just that one year on New Deal projects, promoting them. Um, And one of the speeches she gave, I don't know if it was in that year or not, but she went to Homestead, Pennsylvania, right across the river from Pittsburgh where Carnegie Steel was headquartered. And she was going to inform these workers about their newly won rights through the Wagner Act. And... Carnegie Steel and the local government would not give her any place to hold this this meeting. They wouldn't give the Secretary of Labor a place to talk to voters. So she, and there's apparently a famous picture of her leading all of these steelworkers um, on foot to a post office. She's like, oh, I can think of a place where I can assemble legally, and that is the post office. So she gave her speech on the grounds of the Homestead Post Office to thousands of steelworkers, informing them that they could legally um, unionize and, and bargain collectively for workers' rights.
0: That's amazing. I feel like if I feel like we had to have talked about her in our unions episode, mm-hmm. and if we didn't, shame on us. But also shame on the fact that she probably didn't pop up in our research, which is mostly, one of the problems.
1: Yeah, mostly the second one.
0: All right, so I'm <laughs> going to pass that buck.
1: <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, the buck stops over there.
0: <laughs> well, we're making up for it now. Either way.
1: Okay, Chuck, so we were saying at the outset that if you um, got an unemployment check, thank Francis Perkins. Or if you ever get an unemployment check, if you even like the idea of the fact that an unemployment insurance policy is out there for you in case you ever need it, thank Francis Perkins. And the reason you thank Francis Perkins is because she basically oversaw the creation of the legislation that became the Social Security Act of 1935. Um, and when I say oversaw the, the, the creation of that legislation, like she, that was it. She was the head of this cabinet-level committee that was assigned um, the task of coming up with a, a social insurance policy, a social safety net for the country. And they came up with this within six months, this full policy report. And within two days of delivering the report, FDR turned around and unveiled the Social Security program idea to Congress. And another six months or so later, maybe eight it passed into law.
0: Yeah, and boy, we should do one on Social Security at some point.
1: I agree. Uh, I, I think we have, man. I'm almost oh, really? positive. Yeah, it really rings a bell.
0: Uh, let me, uh, go ahead, I'm looking at it. Up. Well, no, I'm going to have our little uh, our assistant over here check that. Can you go and check on that? Okay, they're on it.
1: <laughs> Who is Tommy Chong?
0: <laughs> like we've ever had anyone that worked for us. <laughs> That's the funny thing is when we get emails over the years that are like, well – To Josh and Chuck and Jerry or whoever on your staff is reading this,
1: (laughs) it's like, yeah, it's pretty much uh, us. (laughs) Yeah. While we're we're reading these emails, while we're having to sweep up the studio.
0: (laughs) Well, I want to be fair. To be fair, we work for a a big podcasting network, and there are a lot of people that help us get stuff out in the world, but – we have mm-hmm. never had, like, a Stuff You Should Know staff of eight people who no. only work for us and research for us and all that stuff.
1: And I feel like it really shows in the podcast. <laughs> I feel
0: like – I'm glad you said that, because I felt like I was patting ourselves on the back for a second there.
1: No, the opposite. But he, that. you
0: dashed that very fast.
1: Sure. Self-deprecation, Chuck. That's our specialty.
0: That's right. So uh, social security, what we're talking about in general, everyone knows what this is, is um, basically a system where um, – Younger, hardy people working hard in this country help out older people, retired people, uh, perhaps disabled people, people that have had work-related accidents. People who wear funny hats. People who wear funny hats um, and, and pay into this system that uh, uh, ideally – and you know, we're not going to get into the weeds here. That, that would come on our Social Security podcast. But ideally then when you are old or in need – then you have that same money waiting for you because of the younger generation and the younger workforce.
1: Right. That's the brilliance of the whole thing is it's a transfer payment system to where you are directly funding the people who have retired now, but it's on the premise that people behind you are going to fund into this to support you later on. Right. It's beautiful. It's a genius idea. And apparently FDR sent her, uh, Francis Perkins, to study... um, the British system of unemployment insurance, even before he was president, back when he was governor of New York. And he became the first public official to commit to developing an unemployment insurance plan. And it was at the persistent behest of Francis Perkins that he did that.
0: Yeah, and it's not like, uh, I mean, he, he didn't run for office with Social Security on his list of things to do.
1: Well, yeah, that's the thing. A lot of people say, like, if it weren't for her, no joke, this stuff probably wouldn't yeah. exist. Certainly not in the form that it does now. And that's not necessarily fair. There are, like, there were programs that had, like, Social Security type programs among the states, including unemployment programs, but they were ad hoc, they were patchwork. Most states didn't have them. And it's the kind of the, 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 the beauty of this the federal program is they're basically like okay states do this but we're going to oversee it and organize it and, and p- help fund it
0: yeah and it's not like i was saying at all that fdr was like not a champion of it or was just lazy he was <laughs> he had a bunch of stuff going on and he had a bunch of irons in the fire uh-huh. so he needed her to come in and say hey listen this is all great cuz we're in a in a a tragic situation right now like we're trying to put out a fire but what I want to do is make sure another fire doesn't happen in the future.
1: Yes, and that was, like, her whole thing. Like, we do need to make sure that people get peanut butter sandwiches because their families are going to starve. Like, yes, these immediate needs have to be met, but we also simultaneously have to plan for the future, too. It was it was just this persistent drum that she beat. Like, we're going to continue to have problems. Let's plan for them now. Like, the level of visionariness... Um, in this in this person was, you just don't see that. I can't think of too many other people who've come and gone in the federal government, in the United States at least, that had that level of, uh, I guess, awareness of looking down the line that far rather than just, you know, four years out or to the next election.
0: Yeah. And she also, you know, we talked about some of the things she did earlier in terms of, of her career, in terms of uh, fair labor practices. But When she was secretary of labor, she had real teeth Mm
1: -hmm. to
0: make real change. And during her tenure, um, she helped craft the Fair Labor uh, Standards Act. Um, She helped establish minimum wage laws, maximum work hours laws. And she finally said, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't make uh, labor for children better. Maybe we should not bring our children to work and make them work. So let's just get rid of child labor altogether.
1: And you can make the case, Chuck, that she is the woman who gave America's kids the concept of a childhood. Yeah. At the very least, she extended it by many, many years. Totally. Um, I've got another amazing fact about her. She, I believe, is the first cabinet member um, who Congress ever sought to impeach. Oh, really? Yes, I'm almost positive that's correct. I know that they did try to impeach her and they, they failed in the impeachment, not just the conviction. she They couldn't get enough support for articles of impeachment, but it was because she refused to deport a an Australian longshoreman who'd successfully organized a general strike in San Francisco and the anti-communist elements in Congress c- suspected that this guy was a, a communist and wanted him out. And she said, you know, I don't think very highly of this guy. Uh, I I don't really agree with a lot of what he stands for, but um, I don't think that you have really good evidence, and I think this is all retaliation for the strike you organized, so I'm not going to deport him. And you might say, well, what did this lady have to do with deporting? Apparently, back in the day, the immigration – the power of immigration or control of immigration was up to the the Department of Labor, so the Secretary of Labor was also in charge of immigration, which really kind of gives you an idea of where America's immigration policies, you know, where their mind was at. Yeah, that it was about importing, you know, good, um, good, um, good workers, or also controlling who came in to keep competition for jobs down. Totally but she so she was in charge of immigration which as we'll see later on she used to great effect is that and, our little
0: uh is that our cherry on top at the end
1: yeah i think so okay I mean, that's okay. a good idea it's it's the kid with the last question in q and a
0: oh man uh and not the drunk guy <laughs> oh, i hate that guy <laughs> so when fdr uh passed away in 1945 she was the longest serving labor secretary uh and one of only two cabinet members um to serve the entire length of his Super, super long presidency. Mm -hmm. And she held over into Truman as well. He was like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So you're welcome to stay, which you don't see a lot of that anymore. Yeah, Um, She published a biography, a bestseller about FDR called The Roosevelt I Knew. Mm -hmm. And uh, here are a few other just sort of uh, career feathers in her cap. She was the head of the American delegation to the International Labor Organization in Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh Truman appointed her to the U.S. Civil Service Commission, which uh, was a position she held till 1953. And she basically accomplished every single one of her goals while she was Secretary of Labor, except for one thing she went in there wanting to do, which was universal access to health
1: care. Yeah, which is kind of a bummer. Well, some people might say it's a bummer. Some people might say good. Sure. <laughs> she also played drums for Dachin for a brief time. For a little bit. She did it all. She and did. all while wearing a, a frumpy, tricornered hat.
0: That's right. Uh, and then after that, she did what a lot of people in um, public policy do. She went on to teach and lecture at the New York State School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell University. Mm-hmm. She did that to, till she was 85 years old when she passed away in 1965.
1: Yes, there are a couple of other things to throw into um both her husband and her daughter suffered from what we today call bipolar disorder. yeah, she cared for them their entire lives um that, she, that little thing, yeah, right can you imagine um, no while she's doing all this other stuff she yeah. she made sure that they were cared for took care of them directly herself um and one of the other things I think is worth mentioning too that while before um FDR became president while she was working in New York, she was already known publicly um, b- before she became secretary of labor because she was the first uh, public official to call Hoover out on his BS when he was downplaying uh, joblessness numbers and unemployment figures um, and just general terrible economic news and pretending things were way better than they were, she was the first person to step up and publicly contradict him and made national news for that. Wow. And, um, you know, again, this is a woman doing this in, like, 1930, so just that alone makes national news, but she was also calling him out on his BS. And one thing that we have to say um, before you you finish with the cherry on top, Chuck, is she had guys figured out. She had a, a folder called Notes on the Male Mind. And she would just take notes on guys and, and men that she worked with and just kind of try to get an understanding of them. And she she realized that the way to get male colleagues to treat you normally or maybe even respect you is to remind them of their mother. Wow. And that's what it takes – Apparently to get a guy to treat a woman with respect at work.
0: Well, and, you know, we mentioned why she's undersung. They're, you know, history is written by men. We all know this. And a lot of those New Deal histories in the 70s and 80s didn't even mention her, which is just staggering that mm-hmm. you can write a history of the New Deal and not mention Frances Perkins. It's just yeah. like a black eye on on any author that did something like that.
1: It almost seems malicious in a weird way. Like, I would like to think that that's not the case, but th- what like other could, explanation yeah, is there? It's nuts. It's weird.
0: So, the cherry on top here at the end uh, is World War II. She, um, World War II was not a cherry on top, but <laughs> right. she was watching Hitler uh, do his thing in Germany and got really worried. She's she, like, man, that guy's cranked up. <laughs> she was, uh, read about anti-Semitism and everything that was going on with the violence there and she wanted to help German refugees escape. And at the time, the uh, Coolidge administration the uh, immigration laws that came through his administration were really tough, and Americans were very fearful that relaxing these laws would increase the job competition and that Americans weren't going to have these jobs. And she said, you know what? I don't agree. Um, The immigration service is under the Department of Labor, and so I am going to put some quotas down to get some of these refugees here and to aid them. And she did that to great success.
1: Yes, she made sure that about at least um, 55,000 Jewish-German immigrants made their way into the United States through these Department of Labor immigration quotas. Uh, And another, I think, 200,000 people in general uh, were rescued from Europe as, as World War II was starting to develop over there because of her. Just on top of everything else, she also saved a bunch of tens of thousands of Jewish people from Hitler in World War II. Amazing. Amazing, Chuck. Uh, I guess that's it for Frances Perkins, huh? That's it. Well, if you want to know more about Frances Perkins, go start reading about her, because there's even more detail to her life than we captured here, and she's worth reading about. Very admirable person. And since I said admirable, it's time for Listener Mail. I'm going to call this Helping a Helper. Uh, and this is from uh, Tawny.
0: Tawny says this, Hey guys, I've been sewing face masks for almost a month now, and I'm close to my 1,000th mask. Nice. That's, a lot. Yeah, that's uh, a lot. I have given and donated to friends, family, co-workers. Uh, I'm a 911 dispatcher, by the way. Healthcare workers, retail workers, delivery people, postal workers, and other essential workers. and Pe- People wearing funny hats. People wearing funny hats and complete strangers. Uh, now that face masks uh, have become mandatory here in San Diego the need has grown substantially and through all of this you 3 have been uh, with me and keeping me company I should talk about Jerry too
1: well yeah okay she, she wasn't talking about Tommy Chong I'll <laughs> tell you that
0: uh, old episodes and new have entertained me through the tedious hours of cutting fabric ironing pinning and sewing i started listening to your podcast while i was in the navy and soon introduce you guys to my husband, who is still in the military. We have both listened um, and learned through the years together. Thank you for continuing your show and helping the helpers of the world. Side note, love the 911 Dispatcher episode, and thank you for clearing up the pizza order myth. Second side note, (laughs) I wrote my master's thesis on the use of body-worn cameras by law enforcement, Mm. and I decided to focus on that uh, topic after listening to that awesome episode. Oh, neat. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, All three of you are thanked and mentioned in the thesis even.
1: Oh, that's cool. Uh,
0: When I'm tired and don't want to sew anymore, I think of this quote from Mr. Rogers. Head down. When I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people
1: who are helping. Go to them and they will help you.
0: (laughs) And that is from Tawny. And that's a great quote, Tawny. I'm going to use that in my own house.
1: It's kind of like um, if you're afraid of flying, watch the flight attendants, and as long as they're not freaking out, you're fine. It's the exact same thing. He's saying when the <laughs> S when the S goes down, there's people helping, so that's always good. God bless Mr. Rogers and you. Oh Tawny. man, man, yep, thanks a lot. Is it Tony? Tawny, T A W N Y. I couldn't tell if you were just putting a little mustard on the Tony. No, like Tawny Catane. Sure, yeah. <laughs> From the white snake video. That, that cultural icon. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Tawny. I apologize for Chuck calling you Tawny Katane. Okay. <laughs> can I apologize for you, Charles? Sure. Okay. Uh, well, I'm gonna do that. If you want to get me to apologize for Charles, let's see if you can do it. You can send us an email. Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuff at iHeartRadio.com.